Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is where he's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, Damon Mann. I don't want to hear argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Another Saturday morning. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having the time. Uh, obviously, a lot of things going on Major League Baseball. We're going to continue with the 30-1 to 1 MLB countdown previews of every Major League team. We got up to the 26 last time. I think we're going to get our way up to 21 before the program's over. But I'm going to start out by playing an interview I recorded with one-time Major League outfielder Pedro Valdez. And Pedro played for the Chicago Cubs in 1996 and 1998, and then for the Rangers in 2000, but ended up having a very good career, not in the major leagues, but went over to Japan, where from 2001 to 2004, hit 21 home runs, 21 home runs, 26 home runs, 18 home runs, hitting over 300 in three of the four seasons, uh, with a very good OPS, around, uh, around 900, a little bit above it, and then ended up spending seven years from 2005 to 2011 playing in Mexico. So he ended up getting a pretty good fulfilling, a get very good job, and he ended up sustaining a pretty good professional career, which really spanned it for the better part of the 90s all the way up until 2011. He is now a coach, um, a hitting coach, and I believe the Chicago Cubs organization, if I'm not mistaken, it might be Cubs or the Giants. But uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League outfielder and longtime outfielder in Japan and Mexico, Pedro Valdez. Good afternoon, it's John Pielli. I'm over here in New Jersey, and I'm joined by former Major League outfielder Pedro Valdez. Pedro, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Uh, uh, pretty good, man. Pretty good. And uh, you know, of course, you had a chance to uh, to play for a lot of years in 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 professional baseball. Tell us a little bit about the beginning when you were you know you were drafted by the Chicago Cubs. You ended up coming through their system, and you eventually made your debut in 1996 in the big leagues. Uh, well, I've uh, been every baseball player uh, I'm growing up uh, back in Puerto Rico. Played through you know, the little leagues and then uh, I ended up signing with the Cubs in uh, '91. Uh, Play them through the season and to, uh, headed to the Wicked in '96. Uh, and it was uh, a challenge you know, that I put on myself, uh, you know, every day to go out there and, and, and bring out uh, the best or what I got, you know, and, 
my job anytime they want to call me up. Not very true. I'll tell you what stands out to me, if I'm not mistaken, is that, you know, it seems like year after year you put up good numbers in the minors. Yeah, I mean, I've been there to help me a lot, you know, every year that, uh, that I have in the minor leagues. And then I will go back uh, to Puerto Rico and play uh, winnable. Um, and every year that I have there, you know, I have the chance to play with a lot of guys that the world already established in, in the big leagues. Uh, I play with Alomar, uh, Ray Sanchez, Igor uh, uh, Gonzalez, uh, Edgar Martinez. Uh, a los Baerga, a uh, uh, los Delgados, so all those guys that were playing, you know, in my team, so that helped me a lot, you know, learning from them and what they went through when they were in the minor leagues. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you, having guys like that around you probably helps you to, you know, motivate yourself to make sure you're getting the most out of yourself and you're you're giving everything you got out there because you probably want to impress some of these guys. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know, with them, you know, you have to uh, take your level a little bit higher. And, and, I mean, they were already established, but I was only, you know, I still in my own But for me to make that lineup every single day, you know, I have to go out there and, and if I have to die for a ball or, you know, I started stealing bases and, you know, and, and keep my, my average high. So I made sure that I was in that lineup every single day and, and, and play together with them. It was a, a really nice, really nice time that, that we had. Hey, once again, John Pielli here with uh, Major League Outfielder for the Cubs and the Rangers, Pedro Valdez. Now, what do you got here? A couple cups of coffee, of course, with the Cubs in 96 and 98 and the Rangers in 2000. Did you feel you got a full shot up there to prove what you could do? Um, when, I, when I went out in my first year, you know, uh, as a rookie, you would have... Uh, how to say the butterflies in your stomach, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, it, it was hard. You know, we were, you know, when I got up, we were, we were doing good with the Cubs, and, and I, I didn't get that much time to play. Uh, I just, I, I got caught up uh, because one of the officers got hurt, but I still got healthy. You know, I was, I was sent down back to the minor leagues. Um, but it was a, a nice experience, you know. I, I really enjoyed, you know, being around Mark Wade and and Wayne Hammer and uh, Charles Dawson that was there. You know, those guys uh, they treated me really good when I was down uh, with them, and 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 it helped me a lot. You know, they helped me a lot. You know, before I went down to the minor leagues, you know, I knew I was going to get sent down, but you know, the time that I was there, they gave me a lot of pitch, and I had to, you know, put my head down because I was going to get sent down. And, you know, they knew that at some point in my career I was going to be up again, and, and they knew that I was going to be doing good. If I could have the chance to play every day, I was going to do good. Yeah. Now, did you feel that there was one player with the Cubs that was uh, more helpful to you in regards to this process? Because it's a, you know, it's a tough situation. I mean, you bust your ass, you know, working hard in the minor leagues, and you put in your time, and you finally get the call up to the majors. Was there anybody in particular that kind of made things a little bit easier for you and made you understand the process a little more? Yeah, I mean, the group that we had that, you know, with the Cubs, all the veterans that we had that, you know, that time, they were always nice to the young guys, you know, talking about Green Summer, you know, he's always uh, doing stress, you know, he always called me to his size and, 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 and 
conversation and asking me, you know, how my family was back at home, you know, everything, all those little details, you know, just made me feel like I was part of the team, even if I was, you know, the, the youngest player on, on the roster. But, you know, him and, 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 uh, Mark Gray, also, you know, he did, you know, really good. You know, he was a nice guy with me all the time, like, getting, you know, Making sure, you know, as a lefty, left-handed hitter, just like him, you know, he just always giving me kids, like, hey, you know, if you play this guy, you know, I look for, you know, two, you know, he likes to be lefty this way, and so different game situations, and, you know, I took all the all the information with me when I went down and the minor leagues and put it together, and I mean, it makes sense, you know, it really makes sense and helped me a lot to develop on my on my game. Yeah, very true. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League outfielder Pedro Valdez. Now, you get a chance in the majors to play a little bit with the Rangers in 2000, but afterwards your contract gets purchased or sold by a team over in Japan. And this is this is where you really start to put up some good numbers. Uh, you know, playing on obviously at a professional level over in Japan, you have four really good seasons. Um, is this is this a point in your career where you really feel like you're doing what you you intended to do? Yeah, well, when I went over to Japan, uh, um, I was just gonna go there for a year. Um, that was part of the deal, and you know, and, and I like it. My first year, it was you know a lot of things that to get in to be a judge because the the way they play the game there is. And the defense, you know, they play the, the little ball game. Yeah, of course. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, and for me to go there and, and, and have the chance and experience, I uh, mean, I took it just like I was there when I was down here and, you know, coming from Puerto Rico to the States, I was playing as a foreigner. And that's, that's what all my mindset was, you know, just coming here, you know, I went to Japan and, and, and that's what I was reminding myself every day, you know, you have to, you're not from here, you have to, Way better than, than they or they do, so you will have a contract for next year. And you know, this time that I did really good my first year, and, and I made the All Star team, and this second year, that year, and you know, everything took off from there. You know, they they liked the way I was playing, and you know, I was I, I think it was Milwaukee that tried to buy me out coming back to the state and, and they say no, you know, he's not going anywhere. So, you know, when they say that, it was uh, a good sign for me that, you know, they really liked what I was doing and, and, and it worked out, it worked out. Now, I'll tell you what stands out about your time in Japan is the fact that, you know, you really, you, you kind of changed a little bit as a hitter, and you, you kind of touched on it just now. Um, a lot more patient in the count. Uh, you know, it seems like you, you were able to draw a lot of walks at a high on-base percentage every year. And it looks kind of like you kind of catered your style, your style of baseball that you were used to playing towards what was being played in Japan, and I think that allowed for you be, to be able to fit in there the best. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the lineup too that we had on, uh, on the team that I played, you know, it was a, a really solid team. Uh, um, we had a, a, a Yakima, the guy that came in cash for uh, the Seattle. Yeah, yeah Ken, Kenji Jojima, yeah. Uh, yeah, Kenji was there. Uh, 
Gucci, the guy the second baseman for the White Sox. He was in behind me. So yeah, but, uh, so I knew that I had you know a lot of like, good leaders behind me. So I didn't I didn't have that much pressure that you know a lot of the other players that were in Japan playing for other teams uh, that they had to carry the team. You know, I was there just to. Like, like, Sal Harao told me from day one, he's like, I don't, I didn't bring you here to, to be the Superman. You know, I want you to just put your numbers the same way that you do in the face and, and you'll be fine. You know, the, the moment that you put pressure on yourself, you know, you're not gonna, the number's gonna go down and then I have to find another player. So, you know, and so I just went there and did, you know, did my job, you know, and, 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 uh, it worked out, you know, it's a really good number every year, and, and, and like you say, my walks were higher, because uh, I didn't have to, to carry the team on my shoulders every single day. Yeah, of course, John Pielli here with former Major League outfielder Pedro Valdez talking about his time playing in Japan. Now, you know, after the 2004 season, you end up going to Mexico, and certainly uh, uh, you get the chance to spend a lot of years there, and you also are able to play a lot. You, you put up some consistent numbers. You have some success. Tell us a little bit about your experience in Mexico and maybe uh, what it was maybe from playing in Japan and playing professional baseball in the United States in both the minors and the majors. Was there anything that you took with you to Mexico when you started this next stage of your career? Um, the time that I played in Mexico was more, you know, I had the chance to come back to the States and, and play in the minor leagues and, and go to a spring training and media camp. Uh, you know, I was going to be closer to, to home and, and, you know, and playing in Mexico, they, they finish early, they finish around, finish July. That's why the last game is in the regular season. So I was just, you know, being more relaxed and, and trying to be closer to the family and, and spend more time with them. But, um, yeah, I mean, when I went to Mexico, it was, it was just, I took it just like a day when I went to Japan and, and Korea, they just went to Korea, um, you know, playing in, in, in another country, you know, it, uh, it was the same uh, mindset that I have, is that you, you know, you're a foreigner, even if they speak Spanish, um, uh, you know, you're not from here, so you gotta, you know, step up and, 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 and always, you know, have good games, you know, try to have a good game every day and, and, and help the team, uh, any way you can and, and, so you last here for a long time. I mean, uh, basically it's a, it's a really hard, uh, league to play. And, I mean, you fail, you fail to play good in one week, you know, you find yourself on the airplane, uh, in a heartbeat. Yeah, now, of course, you end up sticking around the 2000, through the 2011 season. What would you think? Now, you have a chance to play professional baseball in Mexico, play in Japan, in Korea, and in the United States. What did you think was the biggest difference playing in Mexico as opposed to any other organized baseball that you were involved in? Playing in Mexico was... Uh I mean, it was, again, the, I mean, 
los vestidos, los fotos de Terraple, son de Terraple. Uh, Mexico was the hardest because, I mean, like I said, you know, it's just the place is, you know, if you fail to do good on one week, you know, they will, they will get on the phone and, 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 and go and find the replacement. Uh, so, uh, you know, out of all those four countries that I played, Mexico was the hardest um, on, on that part. They have to be on top of your game every single day, every single day. Even if the door was going bad, they weren't, they weren't looking at that. They weren't looking at how you're doing. You know, I brought you here to do your job, and, and that's, why, that's why it counts. So, you know, Mexico, I mean, it's me a lot, you know. It's like, and on that part, to just to stay in, in, on top of my game every single day, and yeah, absolutely. Now, listen, Pedro, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and uh, best of luck to you in the future. Nice spot there with former Major League outfielder Pedro Valdez. Be right back after this. John Pielli, Passball Show. Don't forget, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli, and check out JohnPielli.com. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbees. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're, we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to continue with the 30-1 to 1 MLB Countdown previews. We got our way up. We started with the Astros, then we went to the Marlins, to the Rockies, to the Twins, and finished off last program with the Toronto Blue Jays. And we're going to start off today 
by talking about a team that, listen, I really do think can be a sleeper. I thought could be a sleeper last year. And I think they've done a very good job building themselves a young foundation in their farm system. And that's the San Diego Padres. Padres are coming off of a 76 and 86 season in 2013, but they seem to be going in the right direction. What I like most about the Padres is their starting pitching, led by Andrew Kashner, the right-hand pitcher they got in the trade that sent Anthony Rizzo to the Chicago Cubs. Um, Josh Johnson comes over as a free agent. If you have followed the program last week, I was talking about Josh Johnson with the Toronto Blue Jays and how much of a disaster he was and the team was based on their lack of starting pitching. Johnson comes over to San Diego, a place that he's comfortable, a place that I don't think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him, not that there really was in Toronto, but a guy that hopefully is healthy and can go out there and be a legitimate number two starting pitcher behind Andrew Kashner. And I think that's going to be a very big key to whether this team can be successful or or not. Uh, he's joined in a rotation by right-handers Tyson Ross and Ian Kennedy. Kennedy, of course, came over from the Arizona Diamondbacks last season. Tyson Ross was a guy who started to kind of establish himself as a starter, and I think the Padres' rotation, where it stands right now, is leaps and bounds of where it was last year when you had guys like Jason Marquis and Clayton Richard uh, vying for starts when they probably shouldn't have been pitching. But offensively, the team was supposed to center around last season on third baseman Chase Head. He, he had 286, 36 homers, 115 RBIs, won the gold glove in 2012, looked like he was up uh, one of the up-and-comers in regards to third baseman in all of Major League Baseball. The Padres started to build a team around him, which included second baseman Jed Jerko, who hit 23 home runs in 2013. Will Venable, a guy that's been up, kind of emerged a little bit. 22 stolen bases, 22 home runs in 2013. Headley was not the same hitter, though. He finished 2013 with 13 home runs in only 20 less games. First baseman Yonder Alonso, who had 273, 9 homers, 62 RBIs at 155 games in 2012, played just 97 games in 2013. Carlos Quinton, the guy that the Padres got to back up Headley in the lineup, was supposed to be a big run producer, big power hitter. He played in just 82 games, and he was more known for starting fights with, for no reason. You know, going after Zach Greinke, an absolutely inexcusable effort and job. Uh, there's no excuse for what he did. Terrible job. I'm never going to forget it. You know, Carlos Quinton is a guy, hopefully he is a nice guy. Maybe I get a chance to meet him someday, but terrible job charging him out in that situation against Zach Greinke. Obviously, that's neither here nor there. Cameron Mabin is a guy that I remember seeing playing center field opening day against the Mets at City Field. He only played 14 games before his season ended, and you know he's out for two months to start this season, so uh, not, a, not a real good start in regards to injuries with Cameron Mabin and the San Diego Padres, but the spotlight should be on the pitching. I really think the Padres have quietly put together a very good rotation. Kashner, 10 and, 10 and 9, 306 ERA in 31 games, 26 starts. Nearly threw a no-hitter in his last start in 2013, though he had to settle for a one-hit shutout. Uh, Kashner obviously had control of the game and looks like he's taken the steps to be an ace type of pitcher, and I really do think he has the ability to be a top pitcher. Tyson Ross was 3-8, 317 ERA, 35 games, 16 starts. He's another that could be counted on. I think Ian Kennedy, a guy coming off a down season, 7-10, 491 and 31 starts for both Arizona and San Diego. He's expected to pitch well. I think he's, you're going to see better numbers than you saw last season. The most dependable starter all season in 2013 was left-hander Eric Stoltz, and nobody even really talks about him. 11-13, 393 ERA, 33 starts, had a team-high 203 innings pitched. He might be the fifth starter. 
So I think Johnson, who could be much better than his 2-8, and 6-20 attempt in Toronto. Um, I expect him to be better if healthy, but you know what? How healthy will he be? Casey Kelly, Joe Weiland, and a pitcher by the name of Max Freed could all contribute this season if, if they're ready to come up. And I do think this rotation really has the making to be very good and I think will be the strength on the entire ball club. The lineup, listen, it's already going to be without Maven for the first two months of the season. Alexei Amarista, 236, 532 in 146 games, will probably fill in center field like he did last year. I think the outfield with Maven in it will be pretty solid. Quinton, I think, will produce better it, when healthy, he only hit 13 home runs last year. And Venable over in right field. Yonder Alonso, Jerko, Chase Headley, and Everett Cabrera um, give them a pretty good infield. Cabrera, of course, was suspended for his role in biogenesis, stole 37 bases, and I think could be a legitimate leadoff at, a batter for the San Diego Padres. Nick Hundley hit 233 last year with 13 home runs. Uh, I think he had a good season, but Yasmani Grandal, who was also acquired by the Padres in the same deal that brought Yonder Alonso over from the Cincinnati Reds from Atletos, is likely to be the starting catcher at some point in 2014. Grandal played in just 28 games in the majors last year. He already served the suspension for uh, PED use prior to the whole biogenesis. I think he really has more upside than Hunley, but I think Hunley is a good guy to have in. Maybe mix the two of them. Maybe one of them will stick. If I'm lining up the Padres, I'd go like this. Everett Cabrera at shortstop, followed by Venable in right field, Headley at third base, Alonzo at first, Quinton in right, Jerko at second, Grandol or, or Hunley catching, and Amarista in center field. To me, Headley's going to be the key to this lineup. While I also think Grandol can be an instant offensive weapon. Seth Smith was brought over in a trade that sent Luke Gregerson to the Oakland Athletics. Uh, is is probably lead the bench, may get a little time in the outfield. Kyle Blanks, Amarista, after Maven returns, will make up the San Diego bench. The the bullpen will once again be headed by Houston Street. It was 2-5, 33 saves, 270 ERA. This year he's joined by former Tigers closer Joaquin Benoit, who pitched to a 201 ERA, and he replaces Gregerson, who obviously went over to Oakland. Um, Alex Torres, a left-hand pitcher from the Tampa Bay organization, uh, was, was going to probably be the primary loogie, could pitch uh, single innings if he needs to. Uh, Logan Forsythe went over to Tampa Bay in a deal that brought Torres to San Diego. Tim Stauffer at one point was a very highly rated starting prospect as a pitcher. Um, he, he still might be a starter at some point, but he can make the transition to a late-game reliever and make the San Diego bullpen look a lot better. Guys like Dale Thayer, Anthony Carter, I think lesser-known names they are going to have less of an impact, but also guys that are going to be there. I think the Padres' bullpen is going to be pretty good. I think the key is going to be, is Street going to be the closer? Are they going to go with Benoit? Because I think Joaquin Benoit has closer stuff. He showed it last year in spite of struggling in the Boston series. I, I really do think he has the ability to be a game finisher. Maybe Street makes the transition to eighth inning guy. Maybe Street's gone altogether. But the Padres finished last year at, set, at 76 and 86, like I mentioned before. I could see them being a sleeper team this season. I really felt that way last season. I'm not going to be, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, but I've lowered my expectations with the feeling 
that this team is probably another year away. I want to see the starting pitching develop a little bit. I want them to get a little more chemistry with their offense. Maybe a guy like Headley uh, regains the form as the team's top offensive player. Um, the over-under from Las Vegas was 78.5, but I'm going with the under, 73-89, and 89, fourth place in the NL West. I believe Bud Black is the man to lead this squad. Uh, I, don't think he, I don't think he is the scapegoat. I think the Padres have done a good job, whether it was Bruce Bochy before him and Bud Black you know, since he became the manager, to stick with their guys, at least know that the guy on the field is going to be the team, the guy that's going to lead the team back to prominence. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going through the 30-1 to countdown, MLB previews. Uh, we move from 25, which is the San Diego Padres, to 24, a team that I've spoken about a lot. Uh, and you know that I am a fan of, and you know I'm being objective when I'm saying this, and of course I'm talking about the New York Mets. The New York Mets, uh, in my opinion, are num- ranked number 24 in the 31 MLB countdown. Certainly a team that has more to be excited about coming into this season as opposed to past seasons. You saw, of course, when Sandy Alderson took over as general manager, he dumped a lot of payroll. This was supposed to be the year where they had all the money coming off the books. Johan Santana, Jason Bay. The contracts that, of course, the Mets were, uh, you know, stuck and kind of hamstrung with are no longer on the books. So, you know, you look at the way this is set up. They've done a good job building their farm system with their pitching prospects, of course, on the verge of giving the team a young rotation that resembles the teams of 1969 and 1986. So if you're a Mets fan, you got to be excited about that. They even spent a little money this offseason. They signed Curtis Granderson and Chris Young and Bartolo Colon. But with that being said, the question that should be posed is why I have the Mets at number 24. I started by giving a couple reasons a team should be improved from the 74 and 88 season from a year ago. But the last team I previewed, the San Diego Padres, were given a record of 73 and 89 by yours truly. My issue with the Mets has more to do with what seems like a lack of interest more than an unwillingness to spend money. The payroll has been an important topic since the Mets were involved with Ponzi scheme artist Bernie Madoff, I see how it costs money to improve a team. And obviously the Mets have left some money in the bank account when filling out their roster for this season. Sandy Alderson has been a GM for the Mets since the end of the 2010 season, the 2011 offseason. As we enter year four, he has given the Mets no choice than to go with a shortstop and a first baseman that was here before he came into the fray. Yet, he has no faith in Rubitata, acknowledges the questions surrounding Ike Davis and Lucas Duda. It is year number four, and you have not taken the time to put your solution into the mix by then, then I think that is a lack of interest. Surprising for a general manager that is told his superiors he expects the Mets to win 90 games this season. The Mets have made some good moves this offseason, but in my opinion, they are one significant move away from being a contender. Bartolo Colon comes over. Let's let's remember his stats from last season. 18 and 6, 265 ERA, three shutouts for Oakland last season. That was remarkable, especially for being age 40. Uh, if he's healthy, it's possible he could be similar this year. The the holdovers include, of course, Jonathan Neese, Dylan G, and Zach Wheeler, who all, all pitched very well at times last year. Nice only made 24 starts. G actually had a very good breakout season, 12-11, 362 in 32 starts and 199 innings. Nice, of course, has to stay healthy. Zach Wheeler, 7-5, 342 in 17 starts, is ready to take that next step. He'll be expected to take similar steps to that of Matt Harvey from 2012 to 2013. Of course, Harvey is out for the season after Tommy John surgery. Certainly a big blow 
exploded a Mets who had high expectations this season. The Mets' fifth starter spot is likely to go from the group of Daisuke Matsuzaka, John Lannan, Henry Mejia, and maybe even Noah Syndergaard. Mejia was 1-2 and two with a 230 RA and five starts last season. He's likely to start the season in AAA. Matsuzaka is probably the leading candidate to be the fifth starter job. John Lannan, 3-6, and 5-33, and 14 starts for the Phillies last year, has a chance to win the job, but I think the Mets are also intrigued by the fact that he probably can help him in the bullpen as a long reliever and a spot starter. Like I just mentioned, the eyes are in spring training at Port St. Lucie are on Noah Syndergaard, who of course was a pitcher acquired in the R.A. Dickey trade of a year ago. He looks great. He's going to be in the mix soon, just not to start the season. Uh, the liveliness on his fastball and his curveball have risen the expectations above that of even Harvey and Zach Wheeler. The Mets and their fans are going to experience this soon. But just understand it's not going to happen right away. But Bobby Parnell is going to be the team's closer. Of course, he had a back surgery, which ended his season. He had a breakout year. The 219 ERA really showed he could use that knuckle curveball as that extra pitch. I think he's going to be fine. Vic Black is a guy that a lot of people are very high on. He pitched in 18 games for the Mets and Pirates last season. He throws hard. Maybe the favorite to land the eighth inning spot. Uh, former minor league starting pitching prospects. Joris Familia and Gonzalez Hermin are probably going to play major roles this season. Left-hand pitcher Scott Rice came out of nowhere last season and had a very good season, 73 games before he got hurt. Josh Hedgen, who was just sent down to minor league camp, will probably have a, a say at some point as a lefty specialist. The Mets signed veterans Kyle Farnsworth and Jose Valverde to minor league deals. I think both have a shot to make the team if they have anything left. What I'm excited about is the transformation the bullpen could make by midseason. Jack Leathersitch, who was a guest on the past ball show last year, could be up with them, as well as Rafael Montero, Jacob DeGrom, and Corey Mazzoni. The fact that they all throw hard gives them a chance to be good back-of-the-bullpen relievers. Add Parnell, Black, and Familia to the mix. This bullpen can be very dangerous, especially if these guys come up by midseason. Another guy who could have an impact is right-hand pitcher Carlos Torres, who was a spot starter and a reliever last year. He seemed to do a little better as a starter, but is another arm to throw into the mix. Uh, the Mets, in, in regards to offense, I think they're still a bat short, and this is the way I look at it. The Granderson signing obviously gives them a legitimate number four batter to bat behind David Wright. Um, he could have commanded more money had he been healthy last year. Of course, the freak injuries, uh, which ended up destroying his season, made him probably more conducive for the Mets to be able to sign. Now, it, you know, you look at it like this and you say, hey, Granderson is overpaid. Well, think about it this way. If, if, if Granderson ended up commanding more money and the Mets didn't sign him, imagine talking about Seth Smith being the everyday right fielder. Please put it in perspective. Chris Young's 2013 season, 200 12 homers, 40 RBIs, and 107 games for the Athletics was one of the more puzzling things that I've seen in a while. I think better times are ahead since he's just 30 years old, but I thought the same thing about Jason Bay. Uh, and obviously you know how that turned out. Perhaps Chris Young could have a comeback season similar to that of Marlon Byrd, who they traded to get Vic Black last season. The infield, I think half of it's fine, right? It, you know, 307, 18, 58, and 112 games last year. Daniel Murphy, 286, 13, 78 at second base. The other half could absolutely be a disaster. Ike Davis, 205, 922. Lucas Duda, 223, 15, 33. Battle for the first base job. Ironically enough, Ike Davis had 317 at-bats and Lucas Duda had 318. So you're, when you want to compare the two from last year, yeah, that's about where they're at. 
And unfortunately, I think the Mets would like to go with Duda. Though I, the problem I have with Lucas Duda is the fact that he doesn't seem like he he is a guy that is is a fearsome type of hitter. I don't think he is going to try to kill the ball like I think Ike Davis can. And you figure one of them is going to be playing first base to start the season. Obviously, Josh Satin is a guy that may have a chance to win the job outright. But no, none of these options really excite me. Hopefully one of them emerges, and I think the Mets can only hope that that works out. Shortstop's going to be even more difficult. Rubitata has done everything he can to run himself out of town, except the, the Mets don't feel like replacing him. Since the Mets have the little interest right now in either spending some money on Stephen Drew or pony up a prospect for a trade, the Mets are likely to open the season with Tejada playing there as it looks right now. Internally, Omar Quintanilla, 222, two homers, 21 RBIs in 95 games, is back in camp and probably is plan B. Anthony Saratelli, who had 273, 11 homers, 41 RBIs in 120 games for AAA Omaha in a Royal system, has an inside track on a bench job, though he only played three games at shortstop in 2013. I think he does have the versatility to play both middle infield positions. We'll see where he ends up as the spring goes on. I like the thought of Wilmer Flores getting a shot at shortstop, though I think it's unlikely that he's a reasonable option for opening day. Flores will be 22 this season. He's hit very well at every level he's been at. The Mets do not have a position for him. He's probably a second baseman or a third baseman. So putting two and two together, he would come up, hey, maybe put Wilmer Flores back at shortstop where he's played for a considerable amount of his minor league career. He grew out of the position very early. He has not played shortstop in a regular season game since 2011 when he was 19 in Port St. Lucie in high A ball. The Mets hopefully have their catcher for the future with Travis Darno. He he was 20 for 99 last year, slightly over 200 average in 31 games. He qualifies as a rookie. He has hit his every every level he's been at it as well, and the Mets have been impressed with his improvements defensively. I think he will be better than let's say a Josh Tolley of a couple of years ago. But you wonder if you're going to get average wise and on base percentage wise what you saw in the minor leagues from Travis Darno. Anthony Recker is expected to be the backup. Taylor Teagarden, who has had Major League experience in each of the last six seasons, was brought in to compete for the job. Neither pose a threat to Darno, so the pressure will be on him to produce this season. Juan Centeno, a guy we saw throw Billy Hamilton out uh, while catching in September for the Mets last year, is also in the mix. He could probably get some time up at the Major League level as well. Chris Young was brought in here, signed as a free agent by Sandy Alderson to play. So he's likely going to be a starter in either in center field or in left field when the season begins. Of course, Kurz Granderson is going to be in right field. Juan Lagaris and Eric Young will probably battle for the, the, the other outfield spot, either Lagaris in center or Young in left. Remember, Lagaris, obviously known for his defense, uh, obviously gold glove caliber in center field, up there with anybody in, in all Major League Baseball with what he could do out there patrolling center field. Eric Young did a pretty good job in left two, by the way, which I think very few people talk about. But, you know, Eric Young led the league in stolen bases with 46. Um, the Mets could line up like this with Chris Young, Murphy, uh, David Wright, Granderson, Darno, Duda, Lagaris, and Tejada. Um, I, I think Ike is the odd man out, honestly. I'm rooting for him. I really want to see him win the job at first base. Uh, his injury seems a little more serious than that of Lucas Duda. 
but I do think both of them will get a legitimate chance. The Mets bench will be led by Eric Young, who I think loses out to Ligaris for that extra outfield spot. Saratelli, Josh Satin, Wrecker, and either Matt Dendecker or Cesar Puelo. I think Puelo's out of the mix, if I'm not mistaken. He got sent to minor league camp. I really think the Mets can outperform my expectations more than in the first two seasons that I did these predictions. Uh, last couple of years, I didn't really feel much confidence. I felt good saying the Mets were going to do what they did. And I, I, was, I wasn't that far off. This year, I really do think they could go out there and surprise somebody. I think they can make a little bit of a splash. Their pitching is very good, especially with the young arms. A guy like Syndergaard coming up either early in the season or midseason is going to absolutely help them. And there's always the thought of Matt Harvey pitching in a pennant race in September. And I think if the Mets are in it, I think Harvey will come back and have a little bit of an impact. Vegas has them at 735 I think they can get to 80 to 82 wins this season. However, I think they're going to have problems at shortstop and first base. And it's not a reach to say that. And I think because of that, that's going to hamstring the entire team. I really do think it's going to be an issue. I would like to see the Mets have maybe a little bit more of a proven veteran to share time with Travis Darno if necessary. Maybe not to push him, but a guy like John Buck who was around last year can uh, you know is kind of transitioning to a backup catcher. I think he would have been open to it. I think he would have been a better option to put behind Darno, but not having Harvey hurts. Um, you know, as great as the pitching looks on paper, they're going to have their own ups and downs. You know, a guy like Noah Syndergaard, a guy like Zach Wheeler, or even Jonathan Neese and Dylan G, they're going to have some ups and downs at times. And I, I think that has to be understood. But, you know, I, I hate to say it. My prediction would have been rosier had the Mets made one more move. And that's what kind of bothers me, not only as a baseball analyst, but as a baseball fan and a Mets fan. But I would have been a little higher on the Mets if the Mets brought in that Stephen Drew type. Because I think there's a lot of, you could talk about the positive momentum and everything. It, it's, it's, it's kind of squashed with the negativity surrounding Ruben Tejada and the first base situation. But, listen, if the Mets end up, you know, with the under, um, I really do think they're going to be at about 74 and 88, exactly where they were last season. It's going to probably cost Terry Collins his job, and I don't think he deserves to be fired. But he's going to take the fall for a team that, in my opinion, hasn't tried enough to compete at the major league level for years. It's not his fault, but he's the easiest scapegoat. But once again, moving on, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with some more predictions, previews, uh, 30 to 1 MLB countdown, johnpiele.com, back after this. 5, 5, 4, 4, 3, 3, 2, 1, 1. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We'll offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over 5.5 million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details.
This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. This is empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Faces empty blog. 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 Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, great job by Pedro Valdez being part of the program within this first hour. Second hour, going to be joined by former Major League outfielder Raul Gonzalez and former Major League outfielder Jorge Pietra. And they, they all both have some interesting stories, some things going on uh, throughout their careers and experiences that they've had. But moving forward in the 30-1 to countdown, MLB previews, JohnPielli.com, of course, if you want to read them out and uh, you know figure out or you know get an opinion of what I have and my opinion, uh, check it out, of course, on my website, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. Uh, we just talked about the Mets, who I got ranked at number 24. Uh, moving down the countdown, I got the team that I'm ranking number 23 right now, and that's the Milwaukee Brewers. And the Brewers are considered a team that lies in the production of their star. And I, in other words, Ryan Braun, uh, his performance, what he does this season, I think is going to be the difference over whether the Brewers can compete or they don't compete. Since Prince Fielder left as a free agent two off-seasons ago, Braun is the face of the franchise. Of course, there have been non-baseball-related uh, issues regards to Braun and PEDs. There was this failed drug test that he, that was changed because of a technicality. Then he was suspended for 65 games because of his involvement with biogenesis. While I think the Brewers have built a competitive team around him, he is still the key to any success that they may have. I don't trust Braun one bit. He is a very dishonest person. I think he's out there trying to... You know, get himself the type of performance-enhancing drugs that he could do to sustain his success. If he does, good for him. You know about my opinion on steroids. You're never going to be able to figure out everybody that's doing them and as often as they're doing them. But the Brewers did make the biggest splash um, by signing Matt Garza. They signed him to a four-year, $50 million contract. He was solid when he was healthy in 2013, 10-6, 3.82 ERA, and 24 starts for the Cubs and Rangers. But the problem has always been his injury concerns. Adding a healthy Garza to a rotation that still has Giovanni Gallardo, who was 12-10, 4.18 ERA, a little bit of a down season in his 31 starts. And Kyle Loesch, who they signed last year at the last minute, was 11-10, 3.35 ERA, and 32 starts. I think the starting rotation is going to be good. Other guys like Willie Peralta, 11-15, 4.37 ERA in 30 starts. And Marco Estrada was 7-4, 3.87 ERA in 21 starts. Should fill out the rotation. Left-hand pitcher Tyler Thornburg. Right-hand pitcher Johnny Helwig. Uh, these are two very good prospects throughout their organization. They saw some time last year. They should be and, and may have a chance to break the rotation and be part of a youthful uh, staff for the Milwaukee Brewers moving forward. But the major move that the Brewers made and involved their offense was uh, the trade of Norichika Aoki, outfielder traded to the Royals for left-hand pitcher Will Smith. 
but the Brewers also brought in Mark Reynolds and Lyle Overbay. Maybe one of those guys can emerge as a first baseman candidate. Remember, Overbay hit 14 home runs in 142 games for the Yankees last year. And Reynolds hit 21 home runs for the Yankees and Indians. That may make a good platoon. Juan Francisco was playing first base, hit just 221 in 89 games for the Brewers last year. Scooter Jeanette's going to be the starting second baseman. I think he's going to outseat Ricky Weeks, who hit just 209 last year. Juan Segura, I think, is a guy that's kind of a rising star as a shortstop. He's becoming one of the top shortstops in all of the National League. Hit 294 with 44 stolen bases, 10 triples. Uh, I think he's the real deal. Uh, Aramis Ramirez uh, missed a lot of time with injury last year. I think you could expect a lot from him in regards to the lineup. The offensive MVP of the Brewers last year was... Carlos Gomez, but Gomez had a breakout season hitting 284, 24 homers, 72 RBIs, 20 stolen bases, but catcher Jonathan Lucroy doesn't get a lot of attention. He was all-star worthy as well. He hit 280, 18 homers, 82 RBIs. Uh, the Brewers like Chris Davis in left field. Apparently, uh, some one of my readers told me that uh, Chris Davis is only a left fielder. It's the only position he could play. Uh, that's why Ryan Braun moved over to right field. But 279, 11 home runs in 56 games. Uh, Logan Schaefer, Caleb Gandel, I think will be guys that will see some time in the outfield. Braun, like I said, is moving over to right field. Uh, the lineup I'd put out there is Segura, Gomez, Lucroy, Braun, Ramirez, Reynolds, or Overbay, and then Davis and Jeanette. The bench should consist of Weeks, Jeff Bianchi, Schaefer, Gandel, and backup catcher Martin Maldonado. The key, in my opinion, to this lineup is going to be Braun. Will Braun be a 3-4 type of hitter? If he's not, the Brewers are going to have some problems. The bullpen is going to be led by Jimmy Henderson, a right-hand pitcher who won the closer's job from John Axford early on in 2013. Of course, Axford's over in Cleveland right now. Henderson was 5-5, five and five, 28 saves, 270 ERA in 2013. Francisco Rodriguez is a guy that the Brewers seem to keep bringing back. He's back again. They traded him last season to the Baltimore Orioles. He was 3-2, and two, 270 ERA, 48 games for the Brewers and Orioles. Will Smith, like I said, comes in 2 and 1, 324 ERA in 19 games. One start for Kansas City last season. It'll team up with Tyler Thornburg um, if Thornburg is not going to be a starter to work from the left side as they could both slide into rotation if necessary. Veterans Tom Gorzolani, Albert Alfredo Figaro, and then Brandon Kinsler, I think, are going to round out the bullpen. Not a great bullpen, but one that may not be too bad. Uh, the question that I'll continue to say. It's all going to rely on Ryan Braun, what the Brewers do. Can he return to the 2011 NL MVP form? Can the Brewers be right in the thick of the NL Central race? One's going to have to do with the other. I think the bullpen's going to struggle. I think it kind of washes out any talent of the starting rotation because, like I've said in other previews that I've done for other teams, the Brewers will have good-pitched games by guys like Garza, guys like Gallardo, guys like Kyle Loesch, Willie Peralta. You know, they're going to go out there and pitch good games. It's frustrating as anything when you have a bullpen and can't get the job done. I really don't think the Brewers have a secondary option after Jimmy Henderson. You want to think that Francisco Rodriguez has enough left to be a closer again? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. They should be able to score some runs. I think Reynolds could have a big season for them. He's kind of a guy that's a bounce-back candidate. I think he could go out there and hit a lot of home runs at Miller Park. Uh, the Brewers... We'll have some good moments. I think they're going to have some bad moments as well. Vegas has them over under at 79.5. I think it's reasonable, but I think the Brewers will fall short. I got them at 75 and 87 last place in the NL Central. What's the most unfortunate thing about this? 
Ron Renicki, a guy who came over from the coaching staff of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim under Mike Sosha, will probably lose his job. I don't think the Brewers will tolerate another season similar to what you saw last season and the season before that. Even without Prince Fielder, the question's going to be, and I'll say it again, the Brewers, what's synonymous with winning is going to be Ryan Braun. Does Ryan Braun give them anything? Does Ryan Braun become an MVP type of candidate? And if he does, I really do think that this team could be good. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, 30 to 1 MLB Countdown, Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Once again, you want to read any of my uh, posts in regards to the teams and my previews and what I think they'll do. Just check out Bases Empty Blog on JohnPielli.com and uh, pretty much have everything all set up. Like I said, I've been falling behind in regards to you know the previews that I've been doing. I want to try to do one a day like I've done over the last couple of years, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to have all 30 up by the 31st before the first game of the season where if you're a Mets fan, I'll obviously be down at City Field, and we're going to catch opening day as they take on the Washington Nationals. But one thing I wanted to touch on before we end this hour, and of course we got interviews with Raul Gonzalez and Jorge Pietra in the second hour, um, is the retirement of right-hand pitcher Levon Hernandez. And he was the guy that in 1996, when he made his Major League debut pitching three scoreless innings for the Marlins, was just 21 years old. And obviously there's questions about his age. You know that there's a chance that maybe he may be a little bit older than uh, what, what is expected. His birth date is February 20th, 1975. That makes him 39 years old right now at this very moment. But Look, looking at it this way, LeVon Hernandez, I thought, had a very good career. He was a very serviceable pitcher for many seasons, pitching with, of course, the Marlins in 1997 when they won the World Series, and then with the San Francisco Giants, the Montreal Expos, the Washington Nationals, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Minnesota Twins, the Colorado Rockies, the New York Mets, back with the Washington Nationals, the Atlanta Braves, and Milwaukee Brewers finishing out his career in 2012. There was th talks, there was possibility, there was a thought that LeVon Hernandez could come back and try to make another shot at it after not pitching in the 2013 season. The guy was pretty much the example of a bulldog type of pitcher, a guy that may not have been dominant, but a guy that's going to face a lot of batters, pitch a lot of innings. He had a stretch from 2000, if I'm not mistaken, 19, yeah, 1999 through 2011, where he pitched in 175-plus innings, made 29-plus starts every season, and was never really a dominant pitcher. The most wins he ever had in the season was 15 with the Nationals in 2003, but was also not a bad pitcher, a guy that twice led the league in complete games, many times led the league in innings pitched and games started, and, and I think was a deep, good example of a journeyman type of pitcher and a guy that you know got himself 17 years in the major leagues, was also a very good hitter throughout his career. He, he hit for some power, a guy that hit 10 home runs in his career, hit 221 for his career, which is phenomenal for a pitcher. So listen, I want to wish LeVon Hernandez the best of luck in retirement and hope to see him back in the major leagues, maybe as a coach or associating him with the game somehow. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to Pedro Valdez. We'll be back with a second hour right here on MTRRadio.com. Chicago, the heartbeat of America, yesterday's Chevrolet.